I do want to invite you to take out your Bible and turn back to the book of Luke. This time we're in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49 is our passage. And to conclude uh, this retreat, I want to look at Jesus' conclusion to his sermon on the plain, a sermon which he had been preaching throughout this chapter. And let me read our text to you. Jesus says there, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house, great. Would you please join me in prayer as we, before we examine this text? Uh, Father, all of us in this room, we've been hearers of your word, and, and we ask that by your grace, like Pastor Eric says, you have to do a work in us. By your grace, uh, would you make us doers of the word so that we would not deceive ourselves? By your grace and by your mercy and your love, would you make sure that each of us here would dig deep and lay the foundation of our very lives upon a rock? that you would not merely be called Lord, Lord, but that you would actually be our Lord and our God. By the Holy Spirit, help us be wise rather than foolish builders of our lives. Show to us just how much everything else is sinking sand. We ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus' conclusion to his sermon gives to us a picture of two different kinds of houses which represent two different kinds of lives one that withstands the flood waters and another that does not, one that has for its foundation rock and another which has no foundation at all, which forces every hearer and confronts every reader of Jesus' words to face the question, what kind of life am I living? What kind of response to Jesus and to his word am I actually making? Because each of us is building a house, so to speak, Each of our lives is a building. The only question is, what kind of building is it? One that's going to survive or one that's going to fall flat when trials and hardships and ultimately the judgment will inevitably test us. And Jesus throughout his sermon has been laying out before us uh, what the genuine follower of Jesus Christ looks like, how this person lives, who is the real citizen of his kingdom and a true disciple. And in doing so, he is now closing his message with a challenge and an exhortation, which invites us to a bit of self-reflection because Jesus wants to make sure that everyone who does hear him is not satisfied only in hearing him. He wants to make sure that his listeners will truly have a foundation on the rock and live their lives accordingly. And so we read in verse 46 where Jesus asks a very pointed question. He asks this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You know, Jesus, as he's looking at the crowds, he knows there are going to be many people who honor me with their lips, and yet their hearts are far from me. He knows that there are going to be people, people who profess him and, and those who don't, do not live for or unto Jesus, uh, that there can be the strange phenomenon 
People can hear the word of God uh, even frequently and regularly and will confess Jesus as Lord and not just the one time here, but Lord, Lord, and yet still live as if he is not the Lord at all and still think that they're okay. I mean, Jesus is not talking about those who never heard a sermon or those outside of this building, or those who have never had a Bible open in their laps. He's referring to the people who are familiar with him and who have listened to him and who do treat him with a level of respect and admiration that these ones are actually the ones who are most in danger, that just because you are in a crowd of followers, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are a true follower, because it can be easy to get caught up in merely hearing. And in this context, it was very easy to do exactly that. You know, Jesus, it's harder for us to think about it sometimes. But he's a different kind of preacher than anyone had ever heard in their entire lives. He spoke with this tangible authority like no one else ever could. He healed sickness immediately paralysis, a leprosy. He cast out demons with his voice. He proclaimed that prophecy written hundreds of years prior that that prophecy had been fulfilled in my coming. That is about me. And there are people literally astonished. Luke 4, 34, they're astonished at Jesus's teaching. And so he would speak and their jaws would hang wide open and they would look at each other. Uh, can you believe what we are listening to right here? This man is unlike anyone prior to him and anyone who would come after him, and thousands would travel miles upon miles by foot just to hear the words that would come out of his mouth, and crowds would press in on him to the point where Jesus one time had to go and preach from a boat in Luke 5.3. Jesus is in a boat preaching just to create that distance so that he could finish his sermon. I mean, this is nothing short of amazing. And the demographic he drew was not isolated to a single kind of person, but the demographic of his hearers consisted of all ages, from all different kinds of places, Judea and Jerusalem, even further off pagan places like Tyre and Sidon. And so country bumpkins and city folk, religious and non-religious, they came from all over just to listen to the profound words that came from the lips of the Son of God and God himself who would give himself for us. And there can be this intoxication of being at one of these mega events, this emotional excitement of being caught up into the movement and the miracles and the power and the scene and all of that buzz that people would feel that just by being there, and hearing and finding themselves in the presence of such things and in the presence of Jesus, that that was enough because sometimes it is that the preacher can preach and even tears can roll down your cheeks and it feels as if conviction had actually occurred. It actually feels like your life has changed. It feels that way sometimes because we find ourselves to be part of something much bigger than ourselves, and people would cry out in response, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord because of this emotional current, this spiritual event, this hearing of profound truth, even when that truth had not been actualized in real living, which is why Jesus is asking the question the way that he asks it. Because what we say about Jesus is not enough. Even what we feel about Jesus, but how we live unto Jesus tells us way more 
than our confessions ever will. And this is precisely the point that Jesus has been making uh, prior to our verses this morning. If you just look at verse 43 and 45, each tree is known by its fruit uh, because people are as easy to read as trees. We know what kind of tree by what hangs off its branches. We can trace that right back down to its root. We know the type of person by the way we live out our lives, not just by what we confess, but by what it is we actually do. We can trace that right back down into our hearts. Our outside actions tell us exactly what's inside of us. And this flies in the face of uh, contemporary inclusivity, even the prevalent attitudes uh, within much of the modern church today that you can't see my heart. You don't know what I really believe in here. You don't know how sincere my faith is. It is my faith. After all, it is only my own, and no one, no one can judge that. Even when sinful attitudes and actions are apparent to everyone else around them, you can't question my faith. No one can. But Jesus is questioning it right here. In this verse and in the context of it, that what is in here is really out in the open for all to see. That the fruit of our lives tell us exactly what is at the root of our lives. And in the searching question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you, Jesus is giving all of his hearers a harsh dosage of reality that it's not enough to hear. And it's not enough to confess. It's not enough to get caught up in a moment and to cry and to be emotionally moved and have our hands swaying back and forth. What tells us more than any of that is how we live our lives when we leave. As the Word of God, the Word of Christ, change everything after a Sunday morning. Does it actually transform your goals in this life? Does it change the way you love your spouse? Does it alter at all? how you want your kids to turn out, and where you therefore keep pointing them to. Does that word change how you invest your money? Does it change who you want to marry? It change your dreams and ambitions? Does the Word of God change everything ultimately about who it is that we live for? Does the Word of Christ actually change our actual lives? Because again, how we live is more of a determining factor of if we are a true follower and a genuine disciple, if we even are a real citizen of Christ's kingdom. This is one of the most important and most pressing questions that each of us needs to answer with our own lives. What do we do with the word of God? Does it only sink into our ears and stop right there? And so Jesus, he gives to us two pictures of two kinds of lives, showing to us the two different kinds of hearers. The first one is found in verse 47. We read there again, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. This first picture is of the first kind of hearer, and that is of an unshakable, unbreakable house, which is built upon a rock. And the image that Jesus gives to us is of the one who hears and does them. Someone who digs and digs and digs deeply until he hits what is solid, and then he builds up his life in such a way that the floods and streams, even with all their might, can slam against that building, and it doesn't even shake. 
Because there's a way, brothers and sisters, to build our lives that makes them unshakable. And that hinges upon our own obedience to the word of Christ. You know, Luke uh, here, he writes these words for us, but he wasn't actually even listening to Jesus' sermon. Luke's not in this great crowd. Luke gets this information from people who were there, though, and they told Luke these things even years after Jesus had already been crucified, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. But the reason why Luke can record these words so vividly is because of the ones who memorize these words and rehearse them in their minds again and again, chewing on them, who allowed the preaching of Jesus to penetrate their own hearts so deeply that these things had become altogether unforgettable to them. And this is not what my kids do for Awana. They repeat it and repeat it and repeat it so they can recite it real quick before they forget it. No, Jesus' original followers not only had these things burned into their memories, but it was burned into their memories because they actually lived them out. At the very end of Jesus' sermon in verse uh, 20, at the very beginning, excuse me, of Jesus' sermon in verse 20, when Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Matthew, Levi, rich tax collector, he left a lucrative, albeit immoral career to follow Jesus, and his personal wealth took a very great hit. But it was all worth it to follow him. Fishermen left fishing boats. The apostle Paul left the Pharisee life which was big bucks and big influence, and he started to make tents instead, which was small bucks, to fuel his missionary lifestyle. These disciples did not just hear the word of Christ, they lived the word of Christ. And when Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. When each of these original disciples would get persecuted and beaten, and brought before accusations in the courtroom, and thrown into jail, and tortured, and some executed, crucified, beheaded on the account of the Son of Man, how much more would these words of Jesus be ingrained into their memories, and be found in the very fabric of their hearts, that the Son of God, and God himself, his word is true. And although I have lost all, I have gained everything because I have him, and for this I rejoice. These poor ones, these weeping ones, these hungry ones, persecuted, who loved with great love even their own enemies, are the very ones who have heard Jesus' words, but not in a way that was in one year and out the other, but in a way that penetrated them so deeply as this very word had penetrated many Christians across the century so deeply that they would reflect and meditate and trust in these words because they trust in the one who spoke them. And they would feel great sustaining comfort even when their situations were not all that comfortable. The floods and the monstrous streams would break out against their own lives, and yet they would not be shaken because the word of Christ did not stop at their ears but went into their hearts and were proven by the fruit that had been produced in their living. I'm sure that many of you have witnessed Christians facing hard times as well within the church. At our church, we have widows who've not lost their hope. People with cancer have not lost their joy. You see parents who 
Never quit praying for the children, serving them, no matter how mundane and repetitive it gets. We've seen financially strapped ones. I'm sure that's the same here who trust more in God, even though everyone else is trusting in money. The, this, the one whose spouse makes fun of their faith. The one whose child suffers from disability, and yet these battered believers have a confidence in God and a security therein that is palpable. And while there is great pain in these difficult situations, it's right there next to that pain that we find this enduring confidence that the whole world is still in the Lord's hands. And I'm sure you've seen these believers with this quiet strength, not ostentatious, not look at me, but look at this rock on which my life is founded upon. Not what I will, but what you will. You you can't fake that, at least for a long time. And that doesn't come from a single moment or being at some kind of spectacular event. It comes from years and years of sitting at Jesus' feet and hearing his word and actually believing it and then actually obeying it because you want to put into practice what he says. And that's how we can withstand all the trials of this life, which are currently being used to refine each and every single one of us and to let us know what we're actually made of and so that we can ultimately stand on the day of judgment as a genuine believer because of how we each lived our lives shows us exactly the real trust that rests within our very own hearts, that root which is not a work. It's a gift given to us by God. You know, one of the reasons why, what Dr. Max said yesterday, one of the reasons why it's so good to have spiritual conversations, to talk in small groups, is not to talk about the sermon per se or to talk about the preacher or all the things we liked and didn't like, but we discuss the preaching to make sure that we're not just hearing but we come alongside of other Christians and think and chew and dig deep so that we would be those who hear and do, and that more and more our lives will be built upon the foundation of this immovable rock so that we might be on solid ground when things do inevitably come our way and test us. I don't know if any of you guys have tried to dig anything, whether you're building a fence or putting even a new mailbox uh, post in digging up roots of the tree, trying to fix your sprinklers. Um, My feminine hands aren't meant for it. I mean, it's hard. It it looks easy on YouTube, and you get splinters. And and to have great hope and deep and genuine belief, it it takes great pains. It takes a lot of effort. Brothers and sisters, the picture that Jesus gives to us in our text is not one of leisure uh, or passivity. It's one of deep work and discipline and splinters and never give upness and effort and blood and sweat and tears, but it's all worth it. Because when we dig this deep, we do become immovable because we're founded upon him and upon his word, which is immovable. And so Jesus, he firstly gives to us this beautiful picture of a solid house built on solid ground, illustrating the person who has this habit of hearing the word of Christ and wanting immediately to dig and dig and obey the word of Christ. 
But this is not how Jesus ultimately concludes this Sermon on the Plain. The next image Jesus gives to us is not all that beautiful. And yet this tragic picture is supposed to hang in our minds as the closing picture, as the last words, verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. While there will be people who do dig deep and chew and meditate and apply and and therefore uh, more and more live the word of Christ, be immovable and unshakable in times of trial and suffering and in the coming day of judgment, there's also going to be people who hear the same exact profound words coming from the very lips of the Son of God and God himself. And their result is entirely different. But you can't always tell right away. Just like you can't tell one house's foundation from another house's foundation on first glance. Because you can't see what's underneath. And the house with no foundation and the house built on the rock, they might look the same superficially. And likewise, there are going to be people who close their eyes when they sing and have tears roll down their face at the preaching of God's word and who never skip a Sunday. And it seems, again, on first glance, that these buildings are exactly the same until, until that house and until that life gets tested. And when the buzz is over and the emotional high fades away, And the crowds start to dwindle, which they did during Jesus' ministry. And the authorities start to persecute. And the social cost of following the Son of God is just too much to pay. That following Jesus is just not that cool anymore for me. It's just not making a lot of practical sense for what I'm trying to accomplish with my life. Because the benefit I used to derive, it is greatly diminishing as time moves forward. And when the hardships arrive, a relationship doesn't work out. The money that used to come in, it's not coming in like it used to come. The body gets older, it gets weak, you hit a midlife crisis, the best years were yesteryear. The same kinds of storm tries both of these houses, but when the streams and the flood hit that life, it all comes crumbling down because there was never any true faith and never any real kind of hope because the words of Jesus were only heard and never believed enough to actually live it out. And more than any temporary trial is going to be the coming flood of judgment, which shows instantaneously that this house and this life never did have any footing. This person only heard. This person only cried. This person only called Jesus Lord, Lord. And yet he never really was their Lord and their God because they never really changed in any kind of substantial way. They merely listened, but they did not do. And this one who used to look exactly like the house built upon the rock from the ground up is shown to have no foundation at all. And Jesus says here that this kind of house, this kind of person, immediately it fell. Immediately. I mean, this kind of life doesn't even put up a good fight. In the coming and near future, there were thousands of people who used to follow Jesus, 
these people from all walks of life and all different kinds of places who were jaw-dropped, astonished, and staring at each other because they've never seen or heard anything like this Son of God and the words that would come out of his mouth in just a few short years, there will be but a few handfuls left. And I'm sure that it is in each of our lives that we've seen the same phenomenon over the years. A house that looks so good for a season of time. People so hyped on Jesus initially, smiling at the thought of God's love, even crying tears of joy and walking down whatever aisle and repeating whatever prayer, some even joining the church, volunteering here and there, singing loudly for all to hear, looking and acting like a genuine Christian, and yet their lives, when put under that magnifying glass, they didn't really change. They didn't really honestly repent. And those same sins and vices, they coddled, they, they never confessed, they never left them behind, they didn't want to chew on the word or have that word really change them, they didn't prayerfully discuss it with brothers and sisters to keep them accountable. What you see is all there. There's no private devotion when the doors are closed, no secret prayer, no hidden meditative contemplation, but they think they're still Christians because of what I know up here and what I've heard, which gives this false sense of security, even when there was never any true and deep change. This one never stands. It doesn't endure. It falls flat immediately when the going gets tough. This house and this life can't withstand the trials of life, and this house and this life will be swept away at the flood of judgment, and the tragedy is such that it will never be built up again, nor is there another chance for it to be. And the last and the final words of Jesus' sermons is, and the ruin of that house was great. That's how he closes the sermon. Brothers and sisters, the difference between heaven and hell, this is the latter outcome of these two ways to live, and there are really only two ways to live, obedience and disobedience. This is the difference between heaven and hell. I was watching the news that there rains over here the last couple of weeks, especially you live on the mountainside. When the water comes, it might sweep an entire house away. There's weeping and tray. I grew up in that house. It's lost all in a single moment. Jesus is not talking about houses. He's concerned about your very soul, which is why he closes his sermon with such heavy words and the picture of such great tragedy. And this is why I chose the closing of the retreat to be the same closing. Now, why does Jesus, why does he put the good house as the first picture and put the second house as a conclusion? It would be a whole lot more encouraging if you flipped the order. Let's put the bad news first and let the good news round it up. I mean, Jesus, you need a preaching consultant. Why end like this? I mean, you are at the height of your popularity. Isn't this kind of stuff going to alienate the crowds by being so serious? Why so serious? Why have, as the very last phrase of his most well-attended sermon, be, and the ruin of that house was great. It is because Jesus wants this last image and this last picture to be the one thing to hang in every hearer's mind to kind of haunt us. The Son of God who will give himself for his people, he wants this tragedy to be burned into us 
So this tragedy will never be any of us. The conclusion to Jesus' sermon is ultimately a warning to the crowds and a warning to us of listening and hearing message after message and then driving down that mountain and not living its truth at all outwardly and still thinking we are fine and we're spiritually a-okay because we were in that crowd. We have heard some things. We know some things and sing some songs and weep some tears and cry out, Lord, Lord, even though we don't want to do a thing he says. Is there anything in your life right now that you are coddling and you refuse to obey? Is there anything in your life right now that you just simply do not want to submit to Jesus' lordship? Is there a difficult person, an enemy that you just will not love? Maybe a family member. Is there a social discomfort that you refuse to endure because you'd rather keep your faith a secret? Do you want to be rich more than anything else? you want to be rich more than you want to be godly because sometimes they're at odds with each other? Do you want to laugh now? and eat and be full now, and have a good reputation now, and have the world's arms wide open to you now, and get that instant gratification now? Are these the things that you meditate and chew on and contemplate as you live your life? Where are we placing our foundation? What kind of life are we living? Jesus is confronting each of us now in his word as to what kind of response to him we are actually making Because it is, brothers and sisters, that each of us is building a house, and there's only one kind that survives, and only one kind that is unshakable. Let me read to you what Charles Spurgeon writes about this passage. He says, follow the text and learn to see to your sincerity. Be afraid to say a word more than you feel. Never permit yourself to speak as if you had an experience of which you have only read. Let not your outward worship go a step beyond the inward emotion of your soul. If Christ be truly your Lord, you will obey him. If he be not your Lord, do not call him so. And so there are only two ways to build our lives. Let us not be the foolish kind. And I trust in the mighty grace of our God that you will not be the latter one. You know, one thing about being a guest preacher at a retreat is they can kind of come through and just drive by and shoot y'all. And your pastors have to pick up the pieces. But talk to your pastors. If we're put into pieces by the word of God, that's a good thing. Get reassembled in a better way. Uh, Your pastors love you. I know they do. We talk about you guys all the time. I preach the same sermon in my church. I love my church. Jesus loves the crowd. He loves the world. He gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for his church. And he closes his most well-attended sermon with this image. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for how direct your word can be how revealing uh, 
it is of what can so often be hidden. And we ask that you would stir us and let us not have false confidence or misplaced assurance. I pray, God, that you would build our lives upon rock, build our lives upon Christ. I pray that this church family, Pillar Baptist Church, uh, would be unshakable, immovable, that their very joy would be to discuss your word and figure out how to apply it best, that you'd give them those rough hands to dig deep and dig and dig and find rock. I pray, God, that this church would be mighty in the Bay Area, that you would bring many people to come to know the truth to the ones in this room. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.